purpose of this exercise, meaning that like usually, usually there's a quote right answer to the DBQ. Um, sometimes that right answer is a really, really, really kind of half-assed answer. Um, as you'll see in this, I think the right answer for this particular DBQ question is, is a little weak in terms of like writing an essay. Um, but it's the one answer that all of the documents sort of like uniquely point to. Um, you should write an essay that one, has a relevant thesis and supports that thesis with evidence from the documents. Two, uses all of the documents. This is DBQ commandment one. Three, analyzes the documents by grouping them in as many appropriate ways as possible. Do not simply summarize the documents individually. Um, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not just summarize the documents. The way that you end up losing access to that very, very easy point is just being, by being like, document one is this. They know that's why they give it to you. Um, you have to suggest why it matters. And then lastly, um, takes into account the sources of the document and analyzes the author's points of view. And finally, actually, it needs one additional document. I consider that part of the grouping instructions. So this question is, use the following documents, analyze the way in which black people sought their freedoms in the Atlantic world during the period from 1550 to 1800. Identify one additional type of document and explain how it would help your analysis. So how do black people seek freedom? Um, that's really, 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 really simple as far as the question goes. Now, you probably already know the answer to that because we've already covered a whole bunch of the stuff that you'll see in these documents. We've already talked about the Haitian Revolution and the Slave Rebellion. That, by the way, is the reason that this question is so on the nose important. Anytime there's a major event that takes place during the range of dates that you're talking about and involving the people you're talking about, anytime you have an opportunity to mention it or discuss it, you should. Um, that gives the grader the understanding that you, the DBQ writer, are drawing from previous information you've brought to the table. You have an understanding of history and how this question may fit into it, and you want to like wave around the flag that goes, hey, I know what the hell I'm talking about, look at me. Um, even though the DBQ graders are literally just the DBQ graders, whoever's grading DBQs is never going to see your short responses or your free response questions. They're never going to see any results from the multiple choice section. Um, they're never going to be able to you or to any other answers you have. Um, all of these graders are teachers who actually don't know whether or not their own students are the ones that they're actively grading. Because it's, it's super double blind. What that means is they don't see any names on any of the papers, and the, like, the papers will never see who actually graded it. Um, every grader is given like an ID number, and then their ID number is associated with the grade that they've, they've marked for that particular DBQ or that free response or that short or that uh, long essay. And like the way that it works essentially is that two graders will always see every single paper, and if they don't agree on a grade, it goes to a third grader who errs on the side of caution and who audits given the previous two grades that they've suggested. Um, but that said. They're all AP World teachers. AP World teachers want to give you credit for as many things as they can. And if for whatever reason, you give them any opportunity to be like, this young lady slash gentleman understands their global connections to the far-reaching themes of history, then they're gonna give you the point. Um, so basically, this should be screaming Haitian Revolution to you. Um, but there are also a whole host of other ways that you probably are familiar with that black people sought freedom. Um, you're probably aware that some bought their freedom, some snuck their way to freedom. Yeah, some of them fought on behalf of certain nations that offered them guarantees for freedom. Um, and so the answer to this question, um, well, should present itself as bunches of ways. And so what you have to get to is which of these ways are appropriate to write about. So how do you define bunchies? Bunchies. Um, bunchies is similar to lotses. Um, lotses is like a many's. Yeah, it's ruled like, it, that's le that's more than a couple's and less than a shit ton's. So it's somewhere in there. These are all technical terms. Um, I know this is not a science class, but like, you know, it's like squirrely Right, so there's a meme floating around not too long ago that made me really happy because um, it was just a bunch of, like, it was like a bunch of unnecessary volumes and measurements and stuff like that. And my favorite one was, um, 
was like it was like at a Home Depot, and it was a toilet advertisement, and the toilet advertisement was like, this will flush like nine billiard balls. And the tagline was, Americans will do anything to avoid using the metric system. And I was like, that's the best joke you can make about that advertisement. Because I saw that advertisement when we were shopping for toilets about 10 months ago, and I was like, never felt the need to like blush half a freaking pool rack for no reason at all. Like, but apparently this toilet will do it. So yeah, there's probably for those people who like drop bombs. Yeah, or for evidently the Boys on this campus, apparently. So yeah, um, <laughs> with those toilets, then we just save money on repairs. So, yeah. Um, if there was a different one that was like, this one will flush an entire caddy of golf balls, and I was like, um, you're pooping golf balls. You shouldn't have a toilet at your home to worry about. You should be in a hospital. Um, because yeah, that's yeah. Right about now, we're dealing with quite an interesting trivia about human anatomy, and thank God he's not here. So, um, no, yeah. that's yeah. It's never a good idea. Um, oh my gosh, why? Oh, you need one. It's gonna be great. Um, okay, so um, the first one Thomas Gage, an, Ingi an English Catholic priest, an account of his stay in colonial Central America. Um, so, the first one we're gonna stick with what's a visible color? Where's that blue go? Um, so, so it would be a really, really good idea that you at least sort of like, so yes, yeah, had a, had like an understanding of where we're going with these notes because I'm going to help you with the DDQ document analysis for this one, and then you guys are going to see what you can do as far as building it into an essay, and then the next one, which we're, we're going to do next Monday, um, I'm going to give it to you without assisting document analysis. And I'm just going to like figure out what you can as a group, and then the following Monday, basically we're gonna do PBQ Monday for like three weeks in a row. The following Monday, I'm just gonna be like, try and figure this out individually, you have X amount of time, and just see what you get. Um, okay, so the first one, Thomas Cage, this is an English priest. So it's an English document. He's talking about his stay in Central America from 1625 to 1637. What the Spaniards most fear is some two or three hundred maroons, and by the way, maroons as well as like mulattoes, mestizos, all of these other words yeah, that they can to describe, like you went over it yesterday. Black Africans of origin working in the New World. Most of these are in the modern era to some degree derogatory. <coughs> um, That's nice right. This is why even though they're in the primary sources, you want to refer to the people by which, like the people who are seeking freedom as just black people. Dude, please don't be that American who like travels abroad in Spain and points to somebody and goes, hey, an African-American, you're an idiot. Um, that's just a dude in Spain with black skin. Uh, weirdly enough, the United States, which is like the least politically correct nation on planet Earth, is the only nation that is so concerned with the political correctness of all of these terminologies. Um, you want to be really, really careful to just mirror the language you see in the, in the actual question, not necessarily the documents, because you don't need to quote them, but mirror the language you see in the questions. Okay, so anyway, so Maroons, which are runaway slaves, who have fled Spanish Guatemala and their masters into these woods. These Maroons live there and bring up their children, increase daily so that the power of Guatemala is not able to bring them under subjugation. So first of all, these are runaways. By their example and encouragement, many slaves also shake off their misery and join with them to enjoy liberty, though it may be in the woods and mountains. Their weapons are bows and arrows, which they seem to use to defend themselves. The Spanish um, set upon them. The Spaniards have often said that the chief cause of their slaves fleeing to those mountains is to be ready to join with the English or Hollanders if they ever land in Guatemala. The Maroons know that they would then enjoy liberty, which the Spanish will never grant them. Um, this is an allegation to join a military in opposition to Spain. Okay? And this is a major, major theme in these documents. This idea that, like, this is an English guy, and he's pointing at all these runaway slaves. He's like, the Spanish are worried that if the English actually invade, the slaves will side with the English because they know the Spanish are never going to set them free. Um, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. That that happens, like that happens every single time a European power invades a nation or a colony owned by a different European power. Um, but again, remember that this is an English priest. And he's the source. This is what he believes. Yeah. What do you 
These are runaways, and the allegation is that they're going to join the English army. Um, at least that's what they think. Okay, so document two, thankfully, much shorter. Um, Jane Eldenhead, a slave owner and widow of a wealthy planter in the Maryland colony. Um, so this is interesting. This is a widow. A widow of a Maryland plantation owner is likely somebody who doesn't really want to run the plantation. Um, Maryland, so that you know, is, is not by no means any of the most egregious of the slaveholding states, but it was a slave state all the way into the Civil War. Maryland, weirdly enough, is one of the only places where Abraham like Lincoln's declaration, the Emancipation Proclamation, actually legally applied, um, which was weird. You'll probably learn about that in April. Yeah, um, anyway, so she is discharging Francis Payne, a Negro, of all debts, claims, and demands whatsoever, and to acknowledge that she has received from said Francis Payne the southern quantity of 3,800 pounds of tobacco. With this tobacco, I received full payment of Francis Payne of Northampton for the freedom of himself, his wife, and his children. Um, this is... Freedom, this is freedom by way of purchase. Um, the widow essentially sold this slave his freedom in exchange for 3,800 pounds of tobacco, which is a lot. So, okay, fair enough. But he got his kids, though. Yeah, he got his kids. Now, presumably, presumably, given the fact that, like, she's the widow of a wealthy planter, she probably was just looking for ways to sell all of her property, including all of the human beings that they owned. Um, the common way that this occurred was basically to say, hey, if y'all if y'all delivered me like one really, really powerful bumper harvest that I can use to pay off all my debts, then I'll free all of you guys and just leave you with the land kind of thing. Um, that happened a lot when you're dealing with the female head of a household that doesn't want to run a plantation anymore, um, which quite frankly, uh, I wouldn't want to do that. Wait, so how, where, where would that same individual get all the tobacco? Um, great question. Probably working their land, like working with whoever the master's land it was. Um, now, whether or not they did this as what eventually might be called a sharecropper, or whether or not there was an understanding of indentured servitude to begin with, it doesn't really matter. What matters is he bought his real. Yeah. So, you're writing that up there. Um, you know, document one two and stuff. Hmm? Wouldn't it be easier to say just bought freedom instead of bought freedom with tobacco? Yeah. Either way, it's fine. Um, it doesn't really matter what it was that like you used to buy freedom, whether or not it's silver or wheat or tobacco. If you're exchanging anything for freedom, you're you're purchasing. So, yeah, I would I would file this under like an economic avenue towards freedom, and that's like that's the way that I recommend doing this. I recommend just jotting a couple of things down about what each document is about, and then once you start to see things fit with one another, then like put some bigger labels attached to it. Be like, well. Fair enough, this is entirely about economic activity, or this is entirely about warfare, or this is entirely about X, Y, or Z. Yeah. How long do we spend on each document? I would spend maybe about 10 seconds longer than it takes to read them. Um, if it were me, I might not even, if I had a physical copy, I might not even jot things down. I might just, for example, highlight, like, Acknowledge that he received the sum total in quantity of 3,800 pounds of tobacco. I might just circle the word payment, and then maybe like widow of a wealthy planter, just underline those things, and then move on. And then later on, I might jot down next to this like econ or dollar signs. Or yeah, although you have 45 minutes that you are allowed to self-pledge it, so like you get technically like an hour and 40 minutes to write both the DBQ and the LEQ. So if it takes you 15 minutes longer to write the DBQ than you originally should have planned on, but you get all the points, it's worth the investment of time. What do you do first? Which one do you always do? My recommendation always is to read the long essay question first and then go back and work on the DBQ first. Just read it. Maybe spend like 15 seconds going, okay, maybe this is about that, and then go back and work on the DBQ. Um, the reason for that is that your brain can actually do five or six things at once, um, but only okay. one thing consciously. Wow. So while you're consciously working on the DBQ, your brain is That's unconsciously like pulling the information from its filing cabinet about the other stuff. Yeah. Your brain is filing. Yeah. That's at least, so that's the memory palace example that I use. Um, 
I probably, in hindsight, I probably should have used the library because the ones, seriously, the ones that use a library for their memory palace, it's, it's better. Um, there's a there's a um, memorization tool that they occasionally teach you in colleges um, called the memory palace tool, and what they essentially do is they train you to like to consciously imagine walking through or interacting with a physical object that contains your memories in it. And um, the ones that use a library, they do a lot better because if you use a library, you can divide a library into sections and it holds more stuff because you can divide it into shelves and stuff. In my head, I just envision a filing cabinet with like one of those infinite drawers, kind of like a Doctor Who-ish filing cabinet thing. Um, and I imagine looking at like looking at folders related to certain topics. That's how I, I unravel something. You ever watch the Soul like, which one? So, open it, it's like, it's like, it's literally like the, your soul. Oh, yeah. It's like, a, it's, it's like, a, it's like the animated one. Yeah. 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 There's this like, oh my. With the jazz musician. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, like infinite body. Yeah, infinite body. Yeah, it's all right. The only reason it's good is because I'm inclined to be great. Anyway. Okay, so document three. This is a Spanish governor and town council of Cartago in Costa Rica, Central America. Um, so this one's really important. Um, having considered the various points of view from the petitions of mulattoes, freak coloreds, and lower class mestizos, these are all various terms for mixed race people. We're about to jump into this in like, to some degree in the final section of revolution, which we're gonna cover tomorrow. Um, we see that it's in the interest of the crown that the petitioners come together and settle so that their lives might be overseen by regular justice and they might live in the Christian discipline. Until today, they have lived freely in the valleys and mountains without justice has been able to control them, and it is the de uh, desire of our king and lord and the interest of security of these provinces to have them regular and ready with arms at hand as they are today for the defense of the province of Costa Rica against the hostilities their enemies intend to inflict upon us. We therefore concede to them the right to settle in La Cueva, the right to name and develop a town council consisting of three councilors, a mayor, and a bailiff. So this is a Spanish official and generally speaking this document is about granting freedom yeah that's the implication and the reason that they're granting freedoms to the runaways is the part of the, uh, part of this that's super super important the reason the Spanish decide to grant freedom and autonomy, which is actually even more important than freedom, they grant them the right to like self-governance, is because their intention is that they, one, live under Christian ideologies, and two, be ready to take up arms against enemies. So this is a combination of Christianity and defense. Sort of freedom of any kind. This one's actually super straightforward because this one's also a legal document. Yeah, so this is a this is a proclamation of sorts from like the Spanish governor. And so when he proclaims, like I do hereby announce like these steves are their own autonomous governing body, um, that's a really, really big deal because it involves some form of like legal precedent, which is important. Okay, so document four. Um, this is another court record. This one's French, though. So this is France. Um, this is the Caribbean colony of Martinique, 1705. The petition presented by Babbitt Venture, which was forwarded uh, to us by said Babbitt, who is presently in the service of a Miss Palou. By this petition, she seeks her liberty, claiming to have been born of a free mother and free father. We heard this, uh, the said Miss Palou and the said Babette, who requested to hear us witness on both sides. We consider the inquiries which were made since then, declaring, declared, and Babette and all of her children free and emancipated since birth to enjoy their freedom like any other freedmen. Um, so basically, this one is saying that this is freedom derived from birth because she was born to, allegedly, two already free people. Um, yeah, good. So, this one, oh, that's right, that's a stupid fire drill. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. The teacher told us. Wait, when is it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, so. Um, I thought it was nice nice so, right, it's actually very nice. Um, 
Do you have the safety rope? No, my safety rope was joined. Like us? It says on the court record. Yeah, no, it's um, it's others. Okay, so um, here's. Okay, this is a little out there, and I don't think it's necessary for you to end up using this information. But you may end up using it depending on the way that you structure this particular response. Martinique is very, very close. To Haiti. Ah. And so this conversation about who's free and who's not in the Caribbean, particularly in France, based on parentage, is a really, really serious conversation. It might not be it, it might not be relevant to the way that you decide to write a response, but it may be. Um, you may be able, for example, to allude to Haiti in this response. But this one's important because fair warning. This is the hardest document to group. It's by far the hardest one because it's a court proceeding, and unlike the only other legal proceedings in this document, it it goes the way of a petition a petitioner just because she's the petitioner. Like, hey, I want my freedom, and the court's like, let's hear this case. There are no other cases like that in these documents they've given you, and quite frankly, it's rare to begin with. Yeah. Uh, so you know we have those security. What are other kinds of documents? Are they like a similar program? Don't they take out of like twenty one or something? That's money that's stored in some account that's monitored by the government. That's not how it works. Um, Social Security is an entitlement program. And an entitlement program means that the current debtors to the program pay the current beneficiaries. And what that means is that they take my Social Security taxes and the Social Security taxes of, like, I don't know, I think right now the average is something in the neighborhood of, like, 38 or so to 1. So they take my social security taxes and 37 other people's social security taxes and they roll it into a lump sum payment that's paid out to some old person right now. Um, this is gonna be more and more and more a problem as one, people live longer and longer lifespans, and two, as people begin to retire at similar ages relative to that long lifespan, and three, I don't know if y'all realize this, but millennials are one of the biggest generations in like modern America. We're actually as big as the boomers, which we started there. Um, but millennial, the millennial generation is larger than Gen Z is. And it looks like millennials are having less children than the boomers did when they had the millennials. So it, it turns out that over time, as people become more, okay. So there are actually two reasons that the, what's typically called the great generation has so many kids. Um, the great generation or the greatest generation, depending on who, like, who you talk to, is my grandparents' generation. Um, it's the people who fought in World War II, um, generally speaking. And like plus or minus five to eight years or so around the conflict. Um, if you were like 17 during Pearl Harbor all the way up to like 27 during Pearl Harbor, you're prob you probably fall into the greatest generation. And the war lasts five years ish it lasts a little bit longer than that it's a bulk of a war lasts about five years and all those dudes who went home after world war ii got busy had a lot of kids um and they're they tend to attribute this um to a handful of social reasons but it, it but almost almost everybody leaves out the most important ones so like the social reasons that people typically ascribe to the greatest generation is those who were engaged or married haven't seen their wives in five years, and Crazy. they had plans for what to do when they got back home. Like, that's usually the sort of, like, implication. Um, it's also the fact that the vast majority of people who lived, um, <laughs> who lived during that time, so, okay, this is messed up, but 
There were a lot less eligible ladies. Sorry, a lot less eligible men as compared to the amount of eligible ladies when those veterans returned home from the war because a lot of dudes didn't. And by and large, there were a lot of women who sort of got left in this thing that the United States and like English language called spinsterhood, where like you're otherwise a perfectly eligible member of the reproductive population. There's just no dudes out there for you because either because they die or yeah. your standards are too high or there's just not <clears throat> enough dudes. Enough dudes <clears throat> right? and there's plenty of people out there like this. But there's another really, really messed up statistic that explains much better why the greatest generation had so damn many boomers. Um, and that's by looking backwards at Armistice Day in World War I. Um, you didn't see a massive spike in reproduction in places like the United States following World War I the way you saw after World War II. You saw a small spike, but it wasn't a massive spike. After World War II, yeah, a lot of people came back from the war and like the vast majority of couples, um, the first month and a half or so after the dudes were home after armistice in, in you know, Europe, um, most of them were expecting a child. That happened during World War I. So what happened in World War I was you have this long period of very like, low reproduction because the vast majority of, of like reproduction age males are all fighting the war. And then they all get home and you see this like whoop, and then it just like comes back down normal. Um, not in World War II. In World War II it goes whoop, boop, like just crazy vertical line. And the reason you see that after World War II but not after World War I is because after World War I, um, it's actually really fascinating, Psychologists interviewed dying people, basically like in their late 90s. Um, long enough to remember, like people who could remember World War I. And they all, they all said the happiest day in their life was Armistice Day after World War I. Like anybody who was old enough to remember the end of World War I, like over the course of a hundred year lifespan, they all said that was the most important day in their lives. Like every single one of them. More than the birth of their children, more than their like, more than their marriage, more than the day they retired from work, they were like, "That was the day. That was the most important day." Why? Because the end of World War One was sold as being the war to end all wars. Like after World War One, that was supposed to be it for war. Like human beings were going to look at that conflict and be like, "That's some shit that's going to teach you a lesson. We're never doing that again." And thirty years later, Germany was like, "Don't play again." And the world was like, oh shit, here we go. Like, and the reality was, after World War I, people were optimistic. Like, everybody was really sad. Like, if you look at literature after World War I, we're gonna talk about this in the lost generation period. It's like all the most depressing shit you've ever read. Like, all, yes, it's all like it's all hopeless, soul-crushing, and like 60% of those novels end up with like, and then I watched him die. The end! Like, that's it? It's just, it just sucks. Um, and th like nobody figured, nobody figured war like that was going to happen again. But after World War II, because so many of the people that fought in World War II either remembered World War One or were literally one generation removed from World War One and had grown up with the like the narrative, there will never be another war like this. When those guys got home, they're like, we better get a huge family because like we may need it. <laughs> Which is a really weird lesson to learn. Um, and the right and the crazy part about this is that even though Vietnam was like catastrophic in terms of casualties, and even though the Gulf War caused a lot of damage, not so many casualties, um, and even though all of you collectively, because like I remember the first year that I was teaching, and one of my students was like, "I was born after 9/11," and I'm like, "Thanks, Ariana. I wish you'd shut up," um, because I'm that makes me feel super old. That was my senior year of high school. Um, all of you collectively have been at war your entire life. Oh yeah, like your whole life. And like whether or not it's Afghanistan or Iraq, technically leaving Afghanistan didn't end that war um, because the United States didn't declare war on Afghanistan. We declared war on terrorism, which is not a country. Like it's not something you can just like defeat. Um, if you declare war on terrorism, you are basically going to be like, hey, we're going to be fighting this war for like somewhere between now and ever. And we still are. And the weird thing is, y'all haven't really felt it, like at all. Like 
My grandmother and grandfather used to talk about there being certain days you couldn't buy meat at grocery stores because anything in surplus was sent overseas to the troops. And, and, and like, food cards. Right, and like food cards, sugar rations, all sorts of crazy yeah. shit. Like, and there's never been a day where I went to Publix and be like, Delta, how many bacon? Oh, oh, you got a whole crates in the back? Cool, just wait. Like, that's, that's what my experience has been. It turns out that, and this is, you ever, you ever hear, Online conspiracy theorists point at Bill Gates and they're like, he's trying to destroy humanity, right? Because Bill Gates gave that interview all the way back in the early 2000s. And he, and he said, the goal of humans should be to have less humans on the planet. And a whole bunch of people read that the wrong way. And they were like, this gentleman's going to kill us all. Um, that's not what he meant. What he meant is, collectively, humanity should have a goal to reduce mortality rate. Because if you reduce mortality rate, countries all around the world reduce birth rate as well. So the reason, for example, that millennials on average have like two kids is because even though even though child and infant mortality still occur, they're wildly rare in the United States. Like it's super, super rare. It took me until I was in my late 20s to know anyone who lost an infant like before a year old. And now, to this day, I still only know two couples that that's the case. And that's very rare. Um, it's extremely rare. Yeah, but so like, like, back in my grandma's day, her multiple first siblings were killed as children. That's right. Like, like one was killed, like, I think, no, stepping off a bus, got a scrape, got infected, and they yep. died. Does it count, Levin? Uh, you're saying, like, an infant, or, like, at a certain age, they lost So, generally speaking, if you, are, if, if you have a good expectation, a high degree of likelihood, certainly, that your child will live into adulthood, you have less kids, period. Right. Um, so whether or not that's infant mortality or child mortality, if your nation and culture have a low rate of infant or child mortality and a high average life expectancy rate, um, people just have fewer children. So this is, obviously there are cultural reasons for this too that layer on top of this economic and psychological reason. But this is why, for example, if you go to West Africa, the average amount of kids that people have is as many as they can. Because a child is, to some degree, just an insurance policy in the era before Social Security. It's who will take care of me when I am old and frail? My children will. Like, and that idea is is tied to this concept of like how many kids do you have? And the big problem with Social Security, this is where we came from. The big problem with Social Security is Social Security works when people are having. Six or seven kids on average, and five of them are living through adulthood. Um, Social Security works very, very long term. But what every single political scientist and every economist has known for the last 25 years, and literally none of them are willing to talk about, is if the average amount of children born in the United States continues to decline at the same rate as the average life expectancy continues to rise then there's a certain point at which the current number of workers are not going to be able to afford the current needs of the Social Security entitlement recipients. Oh, right. We were talking about Social yeah, Security. Yeah, and then we're going to have a really, really serious problem. Well, what are we going to do? That's always the old people. Even that, even that, like, three, so this is not the only culprit. The, the global supply chain market is way more complex than people who claim that this is the culprit point to. Um, there are some people who think that the two direct payments made during the Trump administration and the one direct payment made during the Biden administration is what has caused the massive surge in inflation. They're not entirely correct, but they're also not entirely wrong. Um, anytime that there's more money in a system, you will see that system inflate or hyperinflate, which can be a serious problem, in particular if you start careening toward the recession, which we're probably like seven months away from. That's going to be great. It'll time out, time out rather nicely for the midterm or for the 2024 presidential elections. That'll be really, really catastrophic. That'll be fun. Um, so, anyway, what's so our plan in terms of Is your plan? Yeah, um, the plan is to continue to contract the economy to the point where investment occurs again. That's the goal. Um, and the, the way you do this essentially is by raising the prime rate over time. Uh, a little bit of advantage for what we're covering here. This is raising the crime rate. Prime rate. So the prime rate is the rate in which lenders at the federal government level charge to private level lenders 
for short-term loans. So like, there's there are regulations that require banks retain a certain X amount of funds in their accounts at all times. Um, those regulations are set by the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve also sets the prime rate, and they also set the rate at which Treasury bonds are bought and sold. Those are the three like levers and buttons that the Federal Reserve has. So what they do is they set the reserve rate. The reserve rate is like, let's say you own a bank, you have to have at least 25%, let's say, hypothetically, let's say you have to have at least 25% of all the money that you say you hold in your vault at any given time. If you go less than that 25%, the government will fine you unless you can borrow money to make up for it in the short term. Okay. The prime rate is what the federal government charges those banks to give them the short-term loans to avoid the fines. And in order to make money such that they never lose money when they have to borrow because they made a mistake, banks charge interest rates to their investors and to people they loan money to based on that prime rate. So the difference, for example, between trying to get a mortgage two years ago and trying to get a mortgage now is you might not get a mortgage at a lower rate than like six and a half percent now, whereas you might have been able to get a mortgage for as low as two and a quarter percent two years ago. This is the Federal Reserve's way of trying to slow down the economy. When they boost the prime rate over time, the prime rate will become a more a more safe investment in your, of your money than stuff like the stock market does. Um, if the stock market is, main, is making like we'll call it a four and a quarter percent returns annually but you can make 10% annual returns on bonds, then you won't buy stocks, you'll buy bonds. Mm -hmm. And if you're buying bonds, what you're doing is you're just giving the government money to hold on to, and because the government will hold on to that money rather than spend it, there's less liquidity of money in the system and there's less money investment pushed towards the stock exchange. And when there's less money invested in the stock exchange, less money flows, and when less money flows, there's less of it, so people can't afford to pay as much for product. And that's what right now the Federal Reserve is trying to do to drive inflation down. It does not work quickly. Sometimes it doesn't work at all. Um, right now it's, it's worked, but nowhere near as well as everybody expected it to. Um, it's mega, mega complicated, but that's what they're up to. So anyway, um, document five. So document five is a narrative of the life adventures of adventure, a native of Africa, but resident of about 60 years in the United States of America. Related by himself, discussing events in the 1750s, published in 1798. So this is a dude who is a slave. I returned to my master and gave him what I received my six months labor. Um, this left only 13 pounds, eight shillings to make up for the full sum. So this is a slave account. And he has paid six months worth of labor. The amount that I paid him towards redeeming my, uh, redeeming my time was 71 pounds and two shillings. The reason for my master's asking, such for an, uh, asking for such an unreasonable price was he said to secure himself in case I should ever come to want. Being 36 years old, I left Colonel Smith once and for all. I'd already been sold three different times, made considerable money, but seemingly nothing to derive from it. Been cheated out of a large sum of money, lost by, uh, much by misfortune, and paid an enormous sum for my freedom. So this is another slave who is paid for their freedom. So this is a legal means. And once you have this, you've got your first group. What light comes from? Oh, I like you, right? Say again? It's a book, right? Yes. Okay, so your first group idea is economic in nature. Um, these are people who paid for freedom. Or maybe you could say that they bought freedom. And this consists of, at minimum, D2 and D5. Oh my gosh, I'm going to So, in this case in time, if someone bought their freedom, how would they prove that they were now free? Um, they would usually be given a bill of sale, which is messed up. Um, they would be given a document that, in some way, has a signature from somebody that claims to own them that says like, hey, this dude's free. So would they keep it on their wallet? Or yeah, like, you would well, have to keep it. What um, if someone took it? That would be a really bad thing for But you. like, could the government just be like, no, you're not free, just take it from and rip it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it happened. Um, how, how, there were how also, often? Uh, I would imagine quite a bit, given the nature of the amount of claims uh, that southern states and the constitutional government issued against northern states. Um, there, were, there were instances of 
freed people who were slaves at one point, claiming that they had bought their freedom, and then the plantation owner saying they never paid him. And like, we don't know how many of those were fabricated charges or not. But it's, it's probably quite a few. Wow. Yeah, it's mega messed up. What are you doing? Okay, so this is another slave's petition, Dr. Six. So this is a slave's petition for freedom of the governor of Massachusetts. So a petition. This is 1774. Take, um, take your petitioners apprehend they have in common with other men of natural right to be free without molestation to enjoy such properties they may acquire by their industry or by any other means not detrimental to their fellow men and that no person can have just claim to the services unless by the laws of the land and then forfeited them or by voluntary compact become servants. Neither of which is our case, but we were dragged by the cruel hand of power, some of us from our dearest connections and others stolen from the bosoms of tender parents and brought uh, hither to be enslaved. Thus we are deprived of everything that has a tendency to make life even tolerable. We are under the necessity of obeying man, not only in the mission of, but frequently in opposition to the laws of God. So inimical is slavery to religion. We humbly and earnestly request that you would release us from bondage by such means, or by such other ways or means as your excellency and honor shall seem good and wise upon the whole. And your petitioners, as in duty you ever bound, shall pray. So this is a request. Oh, so yeah. They didn't really get their freedom. They didn't ask for it. Massachusetts was a free state, but but they recognized the property rights of other people in the colonies. And so the issue here is that is Massachusetts going to recognize the freedom of these men or the property rights of people who claim to own them as being of more importance than the other? Um, the important part about this is that the tone of this. And the timing of this in 1774. Um, it's crazy. That's actually insane. Declaration. Right. This it is, is so obvious. This is basically tone of the American Revolution. So these slaves are actually preying on the existing political dynamic to try and capitalize for their own sake. That is preying is probably the wrong way to phrase it. They're taking advantage of the political capital that exists by like Jefferson and Franklin and the Sons of Liberty are running around talking about how important it is to live by the laws of God and they're piggybacking on this idea um, so there's that do with that what you will anyway d7 we are winding things down here d7 8 9 and 10 are much shorter um, d7 is just the Earl of Dunmore a British governor of Virginia so this is a British governor um, that's not how you spell governor, uh, although it is very British. And I do hereby fully uh, further declare free all indentured servants, Negroes, or others who are able and willing to bear arms if they join His Majesty's troops as soon as may be, to speak in the business colony to a proper sense of its duty. Oh, okay. um, so this is freedom for military service. That's crazy. Basically, fight for your freedom and we'll grant it. And already, you have something in common with a couple of other documents. Okay, so this one is military. This one is military. And this one is military now. Um, and now you've got at least three doctors. Seven, three and one. What do you think? Yeah, it does. Um, actually, all of these sort of like, all, all of these like Revolutionary War era cartoons really do kind of freak me out. Um, they're all very special. Yeah. Do you know where blackface originated from? Um, minstrel uh, shows, like usually. Um, Big Brain. Yeah. Now that. Not, not a particularly wise thing to do if you were planning on running for public office. Yeah. Would you do what? What would you do? Anyway, so um, D8 is just um, an image. It's a French officer. It's a sketch. Uh, that's a sketch. French sketch. I guess. 
Um, these are American foot soldiers during the Yorktown campaign in 1781. Um, and really, really, really basically, is that it's just soldiers. A mixed race. This one extremely likely also fits in with fight and we'll give you freedom kind of thing. Um, otherwise, I mean, like, you don't see any shackles, you don't see any guns pointed at the dude. Pretty clearly fighting alongside American regulars um, or British regulars because we don't really, really know which um, other than the late notes. But either way, it's somebody who's fighting in exchange for something, presumably freedom. Okay, last two documents. Uh, the source. Oh, this is that guy from Haiti. Yep. This is Toussaint L'Overture. Um, this is the guy who is, like, Mr. Haitian Re uh, Revolution, like, super important. Super important, but died. Um, this is a letter to the French government. Do you think that men who've been able to enjoy the blessing of liberty will calmly see it snatched away? We supported our chains only so long as we did not know any condition of life more happy than that of slavery. But today, when we have it, We've had a thousand lives, we would sacrifice them all right, uh, rather than be forced into slavery again. The same hand which has broken our chains will not, that chains will not enslave us anew. But if to reestablish slavery in Saint-Domingue this was done, then I declare to you that it would be an attempt uh, to attempt the impossible. We have now, we, we have known how to face dangers to obtain our liberty. We shall, we shall know how to face, uh, to brave death to maintain it. Basically, this is... It is... Revolts, or is it like this fighting? Yeah, this is. They are resolved to continue fighting for their freedom. Um, and so, all of a sudden, you've got your choice because all of these documents are about whether or not people are willing to fight for their freedom or not. This also potentially goes with a whole host of other kinds of labels that you could throw to it. Obviously. Um, the spirit of revolution is a major theme during this time period. You could, for example, link it with a conversation about the Sons of Liberty in 1774, that petition to the Massachusetts government. Um, you could link this with a whole bunch of different places, but frankly, it's not clear that you would need to. The last document is um, basically the memoirs of a black preacher. in 1798. Peace was restored between America and Great Britain, um, which diffused universal joy among all parties except us who had escaped from slavery and taken refuge in the English army. For a report prevailed at New York that all the slaves in number 2000 were delivered up to their masters, although some of them had been there for three and four years among the English. This dreadful rumor filled us with uh, inexpressible anguish and terror, etc., etc. The English had compassion upon us the day of distress and issued a, pro a proclamation stating that all slaves should be free who had taken refuge in the British lines. Soon after, ships were fitted out, furnished with every necessary, um, every necessary for conveying us to Nova Scotia. We arrived in the month of August. So these are more. These are more. We will fight for our freedom. Documents. Here's the thing. Do not have a group with six documents in it. That's too many. That's not. It's not specific it's enough. That's not. Yeah. That's just too many. What you want to do is you want to pick the most persuasive of those, and never have more than half of the documents that you've been given in any one group in particular. It just looks like you're taking an easy way out, even if you're not. The other thing is you don't yet have all of the documents in these groups. You've got document one, document two, three, no four, five. No, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. So you still need to find a place for documents four and document six. Document four is a court record. Document six is a petition. Let's go back to six. Legal means. There it is. That's it. You know, is this why we erase our hands? Yeah, camera. Sorry. No, that's it. So economics, military, and legal means. So if you go by legal means, this is a petition for freedom. That's certainly it. Document four is a court record. But what other documents are legal means? Pretty much all the military service, right? 
No, not all. It's illegal. A lot of them. Great military service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the military service ones fall under the like conversation about what's legal and what's not. Um, but there are some that are far more obviously through legal means than others. And I would argue personally that document three probably better like better goes in the legal category than it does in the military category. Because even though military service is implied in document three, it's not expressly stated that that's the reason that they're granting it. And now all of a sudden, you've got all your documents. Yay. Now, um, you need one extra document. Uh, economy? And it has to fit with one of the other groups. I would say economy. So, probably, you probably get another legal means document. Okay, so the question is, which group should it go in? Clearly it should go in either the economics or the legal means group, um, but which one? So if you put it here, what are you asking for? Whereas if you put it here, what are you asking for? Um, I'm asking for a document showing them a ship that this That's actually not a bad idea. Because ships all keep records, they keep laws. That'd be perfect. Um, which, category, be which category would that go into, though? Um, either economics or legal, or like or legal approach. Um, if you put it with economics, the person on board the vessel could be it could be anything from um, a ship's mate to a. You have a slave that's writing his experience, going from. Oh, the middle passage. Yeah. So the problem with that is that it's not addressing the how they see the judge. The judge? Good. So that would be down here. Legal means a judge is a count of You could have a judge. You could have a petition. A different petition, for example, that was denied. Either from the perspective of a, like a slave requesting freedom or a master requesting redress. So when you're asking for this additional document, how do you specifically have to be? You just say the a easiest way to do the additional document is a document, another additional document that would just follow. Where would you put that? Would you put that in the? You got crows. Put it in whichever paragraph that you're using for oh, okay. the groupings. Okay. So an additional document. I didn't mean you actually have those. What would you do? Huh? I think we have to settle this one way or another. The easiest way to phrase this is to just write an additional document that would further this analysis is and then describe why it would help. So I count, so like a petition, like how specific when you're describing what the document should be, like a judge's account of a failure of trial for slave seeking legal freedom would be like that's fine. That's a good one. Or you could um you could say um a, a judge's account of why he turned okay. down I just didn't know how specific that is You can get as specific as you need to, um but the broader you are and like the nature of the document, the more specific you can be as to why you are asking for it. So like, for example, if you asked for the memoirs of a judge, or if you asked for like a, a legal proceeding or a court document indicating the preference of a judge to rule a particular way, um, that may end up sort of forming the basis for why it is that this document would have helped you. Basically, the additional document is, pretend for a moment that you have 11 documents to process, not 10. And you can decide what that 11th document is. That's how to view it. And if you can decide what that 11th document is, or whatever 7th document in a 6th document DBQ is, what would you most like, given the way that you've approached the essay? Yeah. Now, if it were me, which this is the way that we're sort of sorting it out, you can decide however you'd like to group these things. You have to come up with a thesis. And the thesis that I can see when you combine some slaves went the economic route and paid for their freedom, some slaves went the military right and route and fought for their freedom, and some slaves went the legal route and asked the courts for their freedom. just right away. Right, so what's the thesis? How slaves got their freedom. Right, but what's your, what's the way that you describe the way that they did it? How they legally got their freedom. Slaves, slaves got their freedom in 
military service or petitions in various courts. Then you jump into whichever way you're going to structure this. Now, for me, I think that this is the best structure. You go economics first, the most straightforward way that slaves found to, buy, uh, to obtain freedom was to buy it from the human beings who had bought them, right? Documents two and five demonstrate this. Whether, uh, whether it's by way of indentured service over a period of six months or whether or not it's by way of agricultural surplus, obtained at a specific value, these slaves essentially purchased from their from their masters what at one time the masters were willing to pay for the slaves themselves. Um, certain, like you could imply, for example, from document two, that this particular slave had probably an easier time of things than the slave in document five, because the one in document five, like, further depicts how atrocious it was for him to end up doing what he did and to no benefit of his own other than his freedom. Um, and then from there, jump into military. What's My the, recommendation. What's the word after word? Say again. What's that word next to? Rats. Gots. Yeah. Is that a word? Gots. I might as well just like rats. Oh, rats. Mm -hmm. Can I take pictures of this for no one? Yes. This is my recommendation. You do not have to adhere to this, but I think it builds a stronger essay. Okay? Whichever argument you have, this is the way that I recommend you structure the end of like the overall essay that you build. However way you wish to build it, this is what I've seen work best. So when you build these groups, it begins with thesis. <coughs> The thesis paragraph starts out at the very beginning. Okay, this is your intro. It's got to have something like this in it, where you make a definitive statement that is broad enough that your supporting groups can stand up to it. After that, the best way to do this is if you've got three groups, is to open with your weakest group that has the fewest documents. Okay, there's not much you can say about slaves that buy their freedom. Okay, because it's it's already said itself. These dudes, this lady, this Steve and their friends bought their freedom from this Steve who was willing to sell it to them. By saving the their money through hard work. Right. Um, that's a pretty weak paragraph because there's not a lot of analysis you can do with that. There's not a lot of like there's not a lot of words you can throw at who's ever grading this to demonstrate to them that you know more, okay? Your second group should always be your strongest one. On the off chance that you run out of time before you finish writing the DBQ, 
You should never wait until you like until the very end of the DQ to write your strongest paragraph, because the strongest paragraph may actually be two or three paragraphs worth. You might be able to because this is five freaking documents. You could subgroup those five documents into even smaller groups. Like for example, there's pretty clearly like two references to people that fought for the English in the American Revolution, as well as an additional like refutation of people who fought on the American side as regulars during the, uh, the Revolution. So there are three documents within this warfare thing about just the American Revolutionary period and how slavery was used as a bargaining tool by both the English and the like the colonies, presumably the Northerners, but yeah, the colonies in general. And then there's this argument that you can plug in here that includes the perspective of Haiti, which again, you need to make sure you say is the most important revolution during this period. And the reason it's the most important is it's because it's the only large-scale successful slave rebellion in the history of the world. And the guy who's the face of that revolution during the time and as historians look back at it is one of the people who you've been given as a source, right? You can say the presence of Toussaint Louverture in these sources indicate the various ways that people were willing to fight if freedom was on the line. And you could even sort of like expound on that. I mean, like Haiti is an enduring like example of this because Haiti never became a slave colony again. Right? And so clearly what Toussaint Louverture wrote to the French, his people were willing to live up to in the long run because people really were willing to put their lives on the line in exchange, to, in exchange for avoiding slavery. Um, you should always end with a slightly stronger group than your first one. And my opinion is that you should end with the extra document because it, it leads you into a conclusion very, very, very nicely. Well, isn't the first one we were going to use have the document then? So, if the first one is, like, so let's say you've got two here and two here, and you cannot think of how to fit the document into here. I like to end with the document. The only thing that, the only danger that you have in ending with the document is that you could forget. And there are two paths. You either include the document in your flimsy one to, to boost it up a little bit and to make it seem like a stronger argument, and therefore like make sure you get it accomplished, that way you don't forget it. Or you end with the additional document to end on a slightly stronger argumentative note and lead you into a Could your additional document be a like uh on a African American man challenging like yes, I am free. You could say uh, an additional document that would further analysis of the way that legal means were used to obtain freedom. Well I was thinking econ because I would go with both feet. I paid for my freedom, you're trying to take it away. Yeah. Here's legal judge. Yeah, you could do that. Either way, you could do it. It'll work. Okay. Yep. So we don't. So since we don't exactly. Want to take my list? Uh, quote. Uh, any of these? How? Like, do we just write? How? Do we just so write? So when you're writing in the DBQ, you're allowed to assume that the person who's reading your response knows what's in these documents. Okay. So you don't need to quote them directly, and the only way that you should ever quote them directly is if by quoting them directly, you help make a point that you're trying to make. Um, the best one that's quotable in here is document nine. There's a line in document nine that is like basically begging to be quoted in a DBQ. Um, we have known how to face the dangers to obtain our liberty. We shall know how to brave death to maintain it. Like, that's that's the most quotable line in any of these documents that they've given you. There is, there's always one document that's been edited in such a way as to be more dramatic than any of the other ones. It's obviously document nine in this group, um, and they edit them in a way that like really cleverly highlights the kinds of things that people could use. Okay, if this were AP Lang, which it's not. She lives up there. She's great. If you're taking AP Lang with Dr. Ferradino, she might give you a different alternate piece of advice. It, should you quote the DDQ as a rule? No. If you are if 
you are looking for something to make the essay you're writing in the DBQ stronger, the easiest thing to do is to pick the quote that like really resonates with the point that you're trying to make and just throw That's it into your high quality music right Like there. for example, you could pull that, you know, document one or in group one, group two, group three, and at the end of group three you could be like an additional document that may shed light on the way that the legal process was used to obtain freedom might be an account from a judge who would observe this happened on a number of occasions, right? Um, in conclusion, again, you reiterate, if you're going to have a conclusion, you just reiterate this, uh, the thesis. Black people and slaves sought to obtain their freedom by any means necessary. As Toussaint Overture states in document nine, we have known how to face dangers to obtain our liberty. We shall know how to face that. End quote, end DBQ. Um, it's going to vary based on the right documents you have in each group. Um, for me, I'd say this is probably like a four-sentence paragraph maximum. Um, because all you're essentially doing is reiterating the fact that some people have the means to actually obtain their freedom by way of purchasing their money. This one's probably going to be twice or three times that. That's how the slaves got free. Five documents in it. Yeah. And then this one here at the end is Don't probably similar. About four sentences, maybe five. The conclusion should never be more than two, maybe three sentences. We could at least two, like about There's two sentences per document. And, and no, you don't need a conclusion. Right? You don't need one. This is not an English essay. It's not, a, like, it's not something you're trying to build with. Beautiful piece of writing that people read to each other. That's not uh, the goal. Okay. The goal is to demonstrate understand how the documents go together and how they work. Thank you, man. Yes, so we're going to have some time. I'm totally fine with that. My goal is for us to have like 10 minutes at the beginning of each class for the remainder of the week to be able to work on the DVD. So we'll do this. We'll do this in school. Yes. You can work on them at home if you'd like to, but we're going to set like the beginning of the course to be like, I don't know, 12, like 43, and then we'll start things basically for the first 10 minutes of the next morning. Yeah. Uh, what are the conclusion? Uh, give you more points on the DPK? One more time. Would a conclusion give you more points on the DPK? Not necessarily, but if in, in your conclusion you draw an understanding 